all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at University Medical Center and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. You know, GI issues are some of the most common things that kids get, and sometimes adults, too. Thankfully, most are self-limiting, meaning they go away on their own without doing anything. But sometimes they can be a symptom of something else. So today we'll be talking about pediatric GI issues from chronic diarrhea to constipation to reflux and everything in between. If your child is having some of these GI issues, we would love for you to call us with questions or comments. This is your chance to get some free advice about what to do next or try to see if you should worry about what's going on. You can reach us today by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. Well, I hope everyone is having a great fall. You know, Mississippi fall just extends way into winter, which is what I like on the way over here to the studio. Man, the trees are in a full display right now of all their colors and uh, weather has been great. Of course, you know, 75 degrees one day, 50 the next, uh, 20 degree swings. That's the south for you, but uh, that's why, why I love it, actually. So I uh, hope everybody's uh, not having too many health problems this time of year. We have a lot of viruses going around. In the clinic, we are seeing lots of uh, adenovirus, which is sort of your your general uh, snotty nose, uh, cough-type symptoms. Some RSV that's out there, respiratory syncytial virus. That's a virus that can cause some problems in smaller kids uh, with, uh, with wheezing. Uh, of course, kids with chronic diseases like asthma, we're seeing some flares of that as well, um, and some diarrhea as well. So, you know, diarrhea is a common thing that kids get, and uh, just about every child will get it uh, at some point, and they may give it to you if they bring it home with them from other places. Um, but it's uh, it's a common thing, as are other GI issues. It's one of the most common reasons why families bring their kids in for um, for sick visits is uh, our, our GI issues. So yeah, I'm going to open up with an email this morning, uh, and this has to do with diarrhea. So it says, my six-month-old uh, has recently had a few days of diarrhea. Um, I wonder, should I take my child into the doctor? I have several other, other older children uh, who've had diarrhea before and had no problems. But since this is the first episode of it in my six-year-old, I'm just wondering... Do I need to bring them in as soon as they have symptoms, or should I wait? What are the warning signs that I should be looking for? Sincerely, Joan. Uh, Joan, that's a great question, uh, particularly for younger kids. Uh, Six months old, that's right in the middle of when they would normally uh, have diarrhea. It can be seasonal. As we mentioned, there are several different things that can cause it. Uh, Generally speaking, there are several different types of diarrhea. 
that are caused by a number of different processes. Um, your child may have any one of those. If it's something that the, that's sort of the most common run-of-the-mill thing is that they'll get diarrhea and it'll go away, that's usually from an infectious process. And there's two things that they could have an infection from. One is a virus, and there are many that can cause diarrhea. Um, it doesn't really matter which one it is. They all sort of have similar ways that you can track them, uh, mainly uh, hand-to-mouth. Um, so these are things, uh, particularly in younger kids, when you're changing diapers and that kind of thing, you want to make sure that you're washing your hands in between. Uh, food preparation is another way to, to avoid getting this. Um, but viral infections are fairly common. They usually last a couple of days. Usually they have what's called an incubation period of about two to seven days, depending on the, on the, um, on the, the type of virus and the individual. Uh, and that's when they're sort of setting up shop, uh, hanging out in your GI tract and uh, decide to wreak havoc on everything. And they generally cause a lot of inflammation in the GI tract, and they can even have some toxic substances that they produce. And those are some of the reasons why you get the diarrhea, uh, why you have increased water in the stool and uh, an increased amount of stools per day. Generally, those are self-limiting. You know, smaller kids sometimes can have some problems with it if they get dehydrated. Most kids, at least in North America, uh, can do just fine with a run-of-the-mill diarrhea. Um, It's a, uh, you know, again, if they can eat or drink, and most of the time they may not feel like eating as much, but as long as they're drinking fluids and wetting their diapers or making urine, generally speaking, they're they're hydrated enough to deal with the diarrhea. It is incredibly rare for a, uh, you know, a child who's not vomiting, who's not throwing up, uh, to... uh, to not be able to keep up with the, that volume loss. Um, now, once you get outside the United States, uh, even into Central America, you know, cholera is one that has such a profuse diarrhea that's associated with it um, that you you sometimes can't keep up with that and you have to have some IV fluids. Uh, thankfully, we don't have cholera anymore. We used to in lots of different parts of the, of the U.S., but, but thanks to sanitation uh, methods, we don't anymore. Um, so diarrhea is common in six-month-old. I would watch for signs of dehydration would be the biggest thing. Uh, fever that's uh, over 102 degrees, that's 102.0 or greater, um, I would uh, have them checked out. Uh, and, you know, your child, if they're just not looking right to you, that's always a reason to go to the doctor just to uh, get them checked out. All right, let's go to our first caller this morning. We've got Scott on the phone from Jackson. Good morning, Scott. Morning. I have a question. Sure. I, this year, I've been having sore throat quite often. I had one last month in October. I have one again now. And in the last month, she gave me amoxicillin. I think like ten days, I believe it was. And then I had one probably back in August. I want to say, is it something that's maybe causing them more frequently? Scott, what was the the initial thing you said that you're having recurrent? A sore, sore throat. Sore throat. Okay, yeah. And how old are you? How old are you, Scott? I'm forty eight. Forty eight. Okay. Have you had sore throats in the past, or is this something new to you? This is something new this year. It's mainly new more no more often like maybe seven or eight this year. Okay. Do Do you know if you had any fever with that? No, I did not. Okay. No. Uh, so a couple of different things that could cause a sore throat. And uh, 48, usually you're talking about things, uh, you know, you're outside the realm 
of uh, some of the you know chronic problems with a sore throat. Um, but the the main things, infections can certainly do it. And again, it's viruses and bacteria. The most common bacteria that we see is strep, strep throat. But not every red throat, not every sore throat, not every sore throat with a fever is strep throat. Strep throat is is uh, not as common in adults in their 40s, although you can get it. It is uh, fairly easy to get it from other people. Um, but that that is a possibility, and sometimes you can get over that on your own, although it's recommended to treat strep throat with antibiotics because of potential complications. And even if your body fights it off, it might come back. The other thing that it might be is a virus. So there's lots of different viruses that can cause that, and they sort of have to run their course. Sometimes you can get them back-to-back. If you're exposed, you know, if you have kids in the house, uh, they go to school, they bring stuff home, they give it to you. Uh, it's pretty common in the fall and winter just because we're uh, sort of forced inside around other people and we're touching all kinds of surfaces that other people touch. Um, the other possibility might be allergies. So certainly you can get a sore throat, and it can be just as bad as an infectious sore throat if you've got a lot of drainage uh, in the back of your throat. And again, uh, fall and, and early winter are, can be sort of seasonal allergy um, instigators for that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, Scott, I would I would do some over-the-counter stuff first. I mean, the, you know, just taking Tylenol or Advil uh, if you don't have a lot of other medical problems that would that would uh, interfere with that. That's, that's a fine first-line thing. The over-the-counter medications for sore throat, you know, Mucinex and Dayquil, Nyquil, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, and you got to be careful with, with taking some of those just because of side effects. But I would try to just do that first and see if it, you know, see if it goes away. The other thing I always ask patients is, has anything changed? Do you have increased stress levels? Are you getting enough sleep? Uh, Have things changed like that? Because that certainly affects your immune system uh, and can sort of predispose you to getting infections. Um, So I I wouldn't panic just yet. You said it had been happening since, did you say August? Well, I've had had the last one in August, and I had this one here. Yeah. Uh, well, I have one probably in October. I'm sorry, August, October. And now I have another one. I just kind of concerned, you know. Like hey, that, um, do you have any lumps or bumps on the front of your neck? Like if you feel on the front of your neck, is anything sore or, or lumpy? No. No, nothing sore. Okay, yeah, that it's. I'm not. I'm not hearing any warning signs, but certainly three times, and you haven't had it before. You know, that might be something to go get checked out. The other thing that I would throw in there too, uh, if you use tobacco products, if you yeah. smoke, um, okay. good. Okay, because if you if if you did those things, that uh, you know, and that includes dipping, uh, uh, chewing tobacco, all that really puts you at, at increased risk of some other problems, but. I would bet this is a couple of viral infections that you've got sort of back-to-back over a span of that, that time period. Uh, if this one's not getting better in about five days, I'd go in and, and have it checked out. It, you might have – people can be carriers of strep and get sort of infections every once in a while. They may need to test you for that just to see if you need a round of antibiotics. But if, if it's negative, uh, you know, we, we use way too many antibiotics, particularly for sore throat – so um, I wouldn't jump on that just yet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. Sure. Thanks for calling in, Scott. Thank you. Bye-bye.
So we're talking about GI issues this morning and plenty of time for you to call in with your questions about anything GI related, whether that's diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, anything. Uh, you can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about GI issues. That's right. That's exactly what you want to hear about before you go eat lunch. Diarrhea, constipation, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, it's going to affect you probably at some point in your life. Just about everybody ha- you know, is affected by that. Kids get it much more often, number one, because they're younger, because their immune systems are still trying to figure out what is, uh, what are the things they need to ward off and what are the things that are okay. And then also because, you know, kids are nasty. If you didn't know that, I mean, they get into all kinds of stuff. I don't care what kind of manners you teach them. Uh, they're going to touch stuff and then... You know, those fingers go everywhere, in their mouth, in their nose, ears, everywhere. Um, and if, they, uh, if they're at school all day, they're picking up all kinds of different things. And it's not any kind of surprise, you know, if a child goes to school uh, in the fall. or, or um, And, you, get, you know, it sort of can come in waves, too. A lot of schools will have sort of waves of different things going through there. Or daycare, anything where you're putting a lot of people together uh, there is the potential for uh, for having things like that. You know, lots of uh, lots of old wives' tales and uh, grandmother sayings. You know about uh, you you don't want to go outside when it's cold; you'll get sick. Uh, actually. There's not a whole lot of truth to that. Where there is some truth is during the winter, most of the time we're inside. I guess in the South, we may be the exception. But if you're inside, you're around other people. And during the warmer months, you're outside. So that's a, a little bit of a, of a not, not quite true about that. But it is true during the, the winter months. Uh, there's a lot of uh, viruses in particular that can cause a lot of problems. All right, let's go to Alan in Gulfport who has a question for us. Good morning, Alan. Hey, good morning. Thanks for calling. Okay. Uh, my question is, uh, if you've diagnosed with celiac disease and you can't have anything that contains gluten, but then you're still having all these stomach cramps and stomach pains, which uh, the doctor said that those pains were due to the gluten that I was having, so I shouldn't have any gluten. But um, they gave me some folic acid and some iron tablets to take and some vitamin D and then said that it should go away but um, actually after about three four weeks of taking it the pains came right back so I'm not taking any gluten but 
the pain hasn't gone away in my stomach. So I was wondering what could cause that. Sure. Yeah. So is it? Are you having any kind of diarrhea or constipation with that, or is it just a pain? Um, a lot of di- mostly diarrhea. Uh-huh. Sometimes I eat within ten minutes of finishing eat. Got to go to the bathroom. Gotcha. Okay, that hel- yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. So celiac disease. Uh, it's you know a lot. There's if you look at how many people in the U.S. right now are on some type of gluten free diet, it's about a third of the population, depending on who you survey. So it's amazing how many people are doing that. Celiac disease is not as common. It is out there. There is a genetic predisposition to that, and it just means your body can't uh, process the protein gluten. And um, only a small number of people, even if you're at risk for it, even if you tested everybody genetically, only a small percentage of those people would actually go on to develop it. Uh, but there are some increased risk for that. Uh, we know that it's it's increased in uh, the diabetic population, particularly type 1 diabetes, not type 2. Uh, if you have a couple of other autoimmune conditions, you can see it. There's some congenital abnormalities uh, or syndromes like Down syndrome, Williams syndrome. Uh, but... Uh, it is fairly easy to treat in that you just avoid gluten-containing foods. And it sounds like, Alan, since you did that and you didn't get an improvement, I would sort of question that diagnosis. Um, did they make that diagnosis by a biopsy or a lab test? Uh, by a lab test. They had lab a, test. Yeah. I did an, an endoscopy, and then later on I did some blood tests and came up with that diagnosis. Oh, okay, okay. So those are the two most common ways that people are diagnosed with it. Uh, it, it you know, and if, if, if you're going to have, in my opinion at least, if you're going to have, you know, the diagnosis of the disease, you probably should have those tests. Now, it may be that you you have that, but you maybe have something else going on, or may it, it might be the wrong diagnosis. Um okay. Diarrhea after you eat, to me, suggests it can be a malabsorption syndrome, which um, celiac is one, uh, but there are others um, that can cause problems. And I think you probably need to go back to your GI doctor and see if they can do some further tests. And if they didn't do a biopsy of your small intestine, they probably should go back and do that, maybe even again if they did it before, uh, to, to test you out for some other things. Have you lost any weight with that, Alan? Uh, not really. Nope. I'm the same. Maintain my same weight. Okay, and you know, irritable bowel syndrome is another thing that's that's fairly common, and we don't know a whole lot about it. We know that it's just uh, your bowels are a little bit hyperactive, particularly with certain foods, uh, and there is a little bit different treatment for that too. So that's something else to consider. But I would I would go back to your GI doctor and say, hey, this is not working. Uh, can we look at maybe some other things that that might be going on? All right. All right. Thank you very much, Doc. Good. Good luck to you, Alan. I mean, that is no fun. If you're out there and you're, you know, driving around and you got to go, you got to go. Uh, but uh, a lot of people live that way. But there is a hope. Uh, you know, you want to get a good diagnosis, and it's not an easy one. Diarrhea, uh, whether it's chronic or intermittent, uh, intermittent's pretty easy because it goes away. But uh, if it's, you know, just a one-time thing, but if it's a chronic problem, uh, that takes a bit of detective work and uh, sometimes some other tests and sometimes a visit to your friendly GI doctor, uh, and they can do all kinds of uh, procedures and uh, scopes and all kinds of things. People are sort of scared of those things, but actually they're, they're fairly safe, and uh, 
uh, indicated for, for a couple of different things. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about GI issues this morning. The number to call if you have a question about your GI issues of your kids or family, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 672 7464 or email us at kids at Let's go to Debbie from Wesson. Good morning, Debbie. How are you today? Good. Um, I just have a quick comment. Sure. Because I turned 60 years old this year, but this is something that I started experiencing back when I was 12. Uh-huh. And this is in reference to your previous caller, uh, caller not, not the one you just spoke with, but the one before, Scott. Yeah. And I would advise anyone who either has cats or is around cats, even if they're barn cats, do, if they're if they're having these problems with respiratory problems or respiratory problems that lead to digestive problems and or strep throat, do at least have those cats tested because that was what was happening with me so many decades ago is that a whole bunch of cats that I had and then some of them were pets and some of them were strays they were passing strep throat around between them, but we didn't realize it at the time. Not neither my nor my, you know, nor my parents. And um, I was actually recommended to get my tonsils out, but we happened to have a couple of the cats tested, and they had strep throat. I mean, they had strep. So we got all the cats treated, and I never had another problem. Wow. Well, yeah, that's a now that's a new one on me with cats. Now, I have heard, you know, uh, dogs sometimes getting that and, and being carriers of it. But you bring up a good point uh, that environmental questions are some things that you want to ask about because they're and it's not just people that you're around, but other things in the area. And certainly, you know, you can have a hypersensitivity to them. There are other organisms that you can get the one that's most common with cats uh, is actually uh, not strep but uh, it's a pastorella multocida is the fancy name for it and it's a cat scratch disease and you can actually get that if you have a uh, cut or a scrape on your hand or finger or anywhere and the cat uh, licks you uh, you can get that it sort of lives in the cat's mouth and uh, dogs usually have the same kind of organisms in their mouth as we do Uh, but it's possible hey that's uh that's something to think about so thank you debbie for for bringing that to our attention uh think about those animals in the house and who else that you're uh in contact with um in thinking about uh, chronic infections like that if it's just not making sense why you're still getting them um always a good bit of detective work is good so thanks debbie for calling and uh, sharing that with us let's go to fran in hattiesburg good morning fran good morning can you hear me yes i can thank you for calling Thank you. Could you comment or give me some information on how to reverse or treat non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, please? Sure. So uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, used to be called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And what this is, fancy name, but basically uh, NAL. 
you know, non-alcoholic liver disease or NALD or, or NASH, uh, both the same thing. Basically, what happens is you get fatty deposits within the liver itself, and usually those are in between some of the, the, the liver cells, and it interferes, interferes with the way that the liver processes thing, things. Your liver is an amazing organ. Uh, it has many, many different functions. Uh, it helps to break down a lot of uh, substances, uh, any medication, uh, herbal supplements, uh, a lot of the, the proteins and the fats that we intake. A lot of that is metabolized by the liver, um, both to use for the body and to, for the body to get rid of. Um, so it has a lot of different functions. And if your liver stops working, that's bad news. But there's different things that it does. So usually if you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, it, it doesn't cause any, thankfully, any, any problems. However, we are seeing an increase in you know, downstream of people who are progressing to uh, liver dysfunction, liver failure with time if it's not reversed. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of things to do to reverse it. If you uh, are overweight and you have this, or if you're obese and have this, losing weight will you know, help in a lot of cases. So any way that you lose weight, um, as, as your physician sees fit, would be helpful. Uh, some people have treated this with metformin. Metformin is a, uh, or glucophage, is a medication that is used in diabetes, uh, to treat diabetes, and it worked. One of the places it works is in the liver, uh, and for for some reasons, it, it's helpful in those in some patients. And you you tend to lose a little bit of weight on metformin, uh, but that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of other things to do besides making sure that you don't injure the liver in other ways and and lose the weight. Um, although some people are thin and have this. Uh, and uh, it's it's not as common, but uh, you know if you're not overweight, you might that, that you you could still get it potentially. Uh, if it's it, what they'll usually do, uh, it's usually picked up by ultrasound for other reasons. Either you're getting an ultrasound in the area of the kidneys or the gallbladder, and you pick this up uh, in the liver. Um, and uh, it's it, rarely GI specialists will want to biopsy that. They probably would want to check your enzymes. Uh, your liver enzymes, those are the, the substances that help break down all those kinds of things and metabolize lots of different substances. And if those enzymes are, are elevated, then you might have to have some, some further things. But if it's just fatty infiltrate of the liver, as you see either on ultrasound, you can also pick it up on MRI of the liver, um, then you know weight loss is probably the, the best thing to do. Uh, but a lot of people would use things like metformin. So... That's uh, so much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's and it's you know if you look for it, you'll find it. All right, friend. Thank you for calling and uh, good luck to that. A lot of people ask about that. You know that, that just because it it comes up and it really is most commonly diagnosed if you're looking for other things. If you look for uh, you know, things in the gallbladder region when the gallbladder sits up right underneath the liver on the right side of your of your upper abdomen, uh, lower chest, uh, tucked up under the rib cage. And 
you know, there's, there's lots of things that you can find with that with the liver. Now, um, alcoholism can cause the same thing. So that's why don't get offended if some, you know, if somebody sees this and they ask you, how much are you drinking? Or are you drinking anything? Because that's the most common cause. However, we're seeing a lot more of this now, and it's one of the leading uh, emerging um, causes of, of liver damage down the road. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about GI issues this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Mary and Terry. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Um, I just want to ask something I'm curious about. There's sure. been a story in the news lately about a North Korean soldier who defected to South Korea and that he had a lot of, like I guess, intestinal worms. Yep. And I wondered about the prevalence of um, those parasites in the United States and how do people mm. get them? Yeah. So I, I believe, if I remember right, I, I think it was Ascaris, uh, was, uh, and it's one of the most common ones. Uh, so you can have roundworms in the intestines in, you know, worldwide, this is fairly common. Uh, we don't see a lot of it in the United States, although you can. Um, the, the main reason he probably had it is from poor sanitation. Uh, so mm-hmm. poorly treated water is the, the main way that you get it. So these little, these little worms, uh, they look like earthworms if you look at them. They're not as big as earthworms, although some species can get pretty big, like tapeworms can get really big. Uh, but tapeworms, roundworms, um, those are are fairly common in underdeveloped com- countries and mainly because of poor water supply. So if that water is not treated appropriately, uh, they can ingest those the, the eggs of the worms or the worms themselves, and then they go through the GI tract. They can survive the stomach and get down in the intestines and grow and feed on things. Um, if they have a lot, usually what they'll cause, the two most common things they'll cause is uh, weight loss or anemia. Uh, so uh, anemia is sort of the low blood count, or sometimes around here we call it low blood. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because of the iron uh, losses that you can have with that. Uh, there, It's fairly easy to treat, um, although in, in other parts of the world, if you treat them, they'll, you'll, you can clear them of the of the load, the burden of worms. However, if they're, you know, the main thing, if, if they go right back to drinking that untreated water, you, you get them again. It, and again, it's not common in the United States, mainly on the border with Mexico. Uh, there, there's a little bit around that area. Certainly anybody who's been in other areas for a significant amount of time and, and you know, consumed untreated water, uh, they can come back to the United States and, and get it. But it just doesn't spread so much uh, beyond that. Now, pinworms are fairly common, and uh, these live in the soil um, and uh, kids usually pick these up because, again, they're nasty. Um, they play outside like they should, and they get dirt and stuff, and they eat it, and these little worm eggs sort of set up shop in them. Uh, you know, used to, this is sort of one of those old, uh, crazy, nasty things that uh, pediatricians would say. You wait till at, at night. At night, these worms, uh, pinworms, sort of crawl out of the anus, right around that area and they lay their eggs there and it causes this inflammatory reaction and this is nasty but kids scratch that and then the hands go back in the mouth so um that's the cycle yeah that's the cycle but you could you could wait till your kid went to sleep for a couple hours go in there and take some some uh clear uh uh tape 
uh, and uh, and tape it over that area, and then you could take that off, take it to your physician. They would they would put that under a microscope and see the eggs uh, or the worms themselves. So. I wouldn't recommend doing that. If you're, if you know, if you think that a kid's having that, you can take them in. There are other uh, parasites that are fairly common. Giardia is the most common parasite, um, and it's and that's you, dirty water too, isn't it? Uh, it can be, but you, usually that's like in daycare situations. Now you can you can get Giardia hiking. Um, a lot of hikers will do that, but also in in daycares you can you can see it. And again, it's probably because of just the, the spread back and forth. Uh, yeah. those organisms but that's probably why the guy had worms and uh, if he stays out of those situations and gets treated then usually there's there's no problem with that well thank you i was just very curious about you know all of that. and it's you know from an epidemiology standpoint it really tells you a lot of re- about a region if you're starting to see that about people you know uh, it, it was sort of surprising i think to a lot of people that that a soldier uh, who you would think would have fairly good, you know, living conditions. He's not in a uh, direct line of conflict or a war type situation in his own country, uh, but yet there's there's a significant burden of uh, parasites that he had. So uh, I can tell you a lot about water supply. Also, you know, that's we take a lot of things for granted in the United States, and and water is one of them. A clean water. We complain about water. We complain about Jackson water all the time. Uh, just you know how it smells and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, if you compare it to the rest of the world, uh, treated water systems uh, and sanitation have contributed to probably more lives saved than any other advance in medicine. Uh, and and most of that has been through good again detective work in population. So. There you have it. Worms. That's right. We're talking about it here on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Plenty of time for you to call in. Maybe you got some worm questions or other questions about GI problems in your kids or family. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about GI issues this morning, all kinds of different stuff, and uh, even worms. That's right, worms. Uh... Thankfully, not here so much, but in other places in the world. So, you know, you think about uh, a reflux is a big question we get. I had a patient last week that came in, a um, uh, mother who had several other kids before. Actually, this was her sixth child. 
but they, you know, they spit up a little bit when they were younger, but this was a two-week checkup, uh, and she did well, and then she came back for her um, two-month checkup, and she said, you know, about four weeks out, uh, this little kid started spitting up like crazy, and she called a couple of times and was a little concerned about it and just wanted to know, you know, why, because our other kids didn't act that way. So reflux is a big issue in children, and Every kid spits up. I don't know any kid that I have ever seen that has at least spit up after feeding at least sometime. And um, it can be, you know, you it, it can look like a lot of volume that they spit up. Uh, it's a normal phenomenon, though. Uh, you know, if there's a reason why you have a little spit cloth, a little spit rag, uh, that you throw over your shoulder when you burp your kid or uh, because you don't want to get all that on you. So reflux is, is fairly common. Now, it, it needs to be differentiated between uh, gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. So adults sometimes are diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease. Uh, but kids, all kids are going to have reflux, particularly from about uh, you know anywhere from two to four weeks of age, they usually start, and they usually it gets starts to get better about four to six months, and then most term uh, babies babies born at full term by the time they're anywhere from nine months to twelve months, it's gone away completely. And what happens if you a little bit of an anatomy and physiology les- lesson here? So you know when you swallow food, when you chew up food, or if it's if it's liquid, you're you're swallowing that. There's a long tube called the esophagus. It basically is a a lot of muscle that helps to push that food down into the stomach. At the at the place where that esophagus attaches to the top of your stomach, there's a little valve there. So it's just like any other valve. It keeps uh, things from going back up into the esophagus because the stomach also got a lot, it has a lot of muscle in it and it churns things up. Uh, there's a lot of stomach acid, which is a good thing. It helps to break down food. It helps to destroy a lot of bacteria. Some of the ones we've been talking about are destroyed in the stomach. Um, it helps to break all that down. And then after a sufficient amount of time, uh, at the lower end of the stomach, uh, there's another valve that opens, uh, and that food then our, our food particles go into the small intestine, the first part of your intestines. So in babies, um, you know their, their little stomach is like a balloon. So when it fills up with with milk, uh, with breast milk or formula. Uh, it distends and you increase pressures there, and the valves are supposed to keep that in there. However, that valve between the esophagus and the stomach uh, isn't quite as developed. And in fact, I commonly, when I'm examining a child, uh, produce this on the exam table. If I'm pressing on the abdomen and they just ate, uh, it's more likely than not that, that con- those contents are going to come right back up. And reflux is, you know, what does it look like in a child? Well, food will come back up the esophagus. Uh, I keep saying food, but formula, milk, will come back up the esophagus. And it will sometimes come out of the mouth or even out of the nose. And people are always freaked out when, when it comes out of the nose. That's okay. In fact, most babies don't even bat an eye with that. They just, it like, it's not anything going to phase him. I mean, you think about it. If, you, if something comes back out of your nose, usually that's a big problem if you're an adult. For these babies, it's not a big problem. That, uh, that valve, that lower esophageal sphincter, we call it, um, gets um, 
more developed with time. I usually tell patients, you know, think about your baby. They can't walk. They can't sit up at this point because those muscles aren't developed. The muscles in that valve are not developed yet either, and it takes some time to do that. So that is gastroesophageal reflux. It's, an, again, a normal phenomenon. Some babies do it more than others. Uh, red flags to watch out for. We, we look at growth and, um, you know, in weight uh, is a big one and to make sure that babies are appropriately growing. If they're having a significant amount of spinning up of reflux and their weight is sort of staying the same or they're not gaining weight as fast as we would like them to, that's a reason to you know try to look and see if this is a problem, um, or if you know sometimes babies seem to be just really ticked off by this. Now, again, most babies can spit up; it comes out of the mouth, the nose. It's no problem. Some of them, though, it does cause a lot of problems, and that's the other reason. You know, if they're just not uh, acting right afterwards. Most of the time, uh, there's some maneuvers that you can do to try to decrease the amount of, of volume that they're spitting up. Uh, one is making sure that when you feed them that you keep them upright so that their head is you know, in the upright position. Uh, you don't want to feed them while they're uh, totally laying down if they have a lot of reflux. And that's just using gravity to your advantage um, to keep stuff down. Um, the other is, in some instances, your physician may uh, tell you that to to cut back on the amount that you're feeding, but to decrease the interval that you're feeding. For instance, if you're feeding uh, your child two to three ounces every four hours, they may say, you know, at least during the day, you may go back to just two ounces instead of three uh, every three hours. Uh, and again, you're just not filling up that stomach, filling up the balloon, so you're decreasing the pressure that's there. You want to be careful with that, that you're getting enough um, enough calories, though, enough formula. Your physician can help you out with that uh, to calculate that out and make sure that they're getting that and make sure they're going to be able to grow. Medications don't really help with the reflux part. We used to have a medication years ago called Propulsid or Cisapride. It was taken off the market because of some side effects and some interactions with other medications. But barring that, there's not really any kind of, you know, other medication out there that decreases uh, reflux. Um, all of the everybody sometimes thinks that all of the proton pump inhibitors, that's everything that, you know, omeprazole, uh, Nexium, uh, Prevacid, um, uh, all of those that they um, uh, that they can decrease reflux. What they do is decrease stomach acid. Uh, and we know now that that may not be the best medication, except in a few instances for long-term use. If you're using it long-term, either as a child or as an adult, that um, may not be a good idea just because of some, uh, some data that we've had in the last couple of years. Uh, the other class of medications that, that is sometimes used is uh, the H2 blocker, Zantac is probably the most common one, uh, or renitidine is another name for it. And again, that's just decreasing the acid there. Um, but most of the time, this is okay. It goes away at four to six months, most likely because you're starting to introduce solid foods at that point, and solid foods tend to stay down and not come back up um, that uh, lower esophageal sphincter um, um, 
as much as liquids do. Um, but if it's, you know, if, any, if you have any of those red flags, again, if the weight's dropping off, if they're just really irate when they spit back up, um, then you might think, about, um, might think about talking to your physician about that. Very rarely they'll do surgery, but usually that's a kid that's not gaining weight appropriately. And most of the time that's associated with other medical, chronic medical conditions. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about GI issues this morning. Still got some time if you have one or two questions that you want to call in about. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll take one more break, and we'll be right back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and I'm Dr. Jimmy. We're talking about GI issues this morning. That's right, all that nasty stuff right before lunch. Uh, A lot of good stuff that we're covering here, including worms earlier. Uh, just to throw that in there, you might want to you might want to turn to something pleasant for lunch if you're uh, listening to the radio over that. So, but we got some good information, and we got a little bit more time. If you'd like to call in, the number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Kimberly in Mobile. Good morning, Kimberly. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yes, yes, yes. I have a question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I was in the hospital about two years ago uh-huh. uh, for stomach issues, and uh, come to find out, um, I was diagnosed with um, gastric esophageal reflux. Uh-huh. Now, I don't have it often, but when I do, it hurts really bad. I mean, I haven't been seeing a doctor for it. So, so what would you recommend? I do sure. just like an over-the-counter medicine or, or what? Yeah, if it's if it's uh, you know as an adult, if you have uh, if you've been diagnosed with that with gastroesophageal reflux, most likely you can take some of the over-the-counter adult medications. Um, again, I, I would always check with your physician's office just to make sure that's okay, make sure you don't have any, it's not going to interact with other medications. But even okay. things as simple as Tums can help out with that. Tums is calcium carbonate, uh, yeah. and it, it sort of buffers uh, it, the acid in your stomach. Um, and if that works for you, that's probably fine, it, you know, if it's every once in a while. Now, if you're using it, you know, every day, every other day, then that's probably a reason to step it up a little bit. Some of the other over-the-counter medications, I mentioned some of them earlier, Prevacid, Zantac, that's probably yeah. okay to take every once in a while if you're having it, and it yeah. you know it works. I take some of those myself when I get bad heartburn. Uh, most people can identify over time which foods 
are going to cause those symptoms. And, you know, there are some things that increase the acid in your stomach. Uh, and everybody's a little bit different. I have, you know, some friends of mine, they can eat, you know, just the, the hottest Tabasco sauce on the planet, uh, and they don't have any problems. And then other people, if they just eat something just a little bit, you know, spicy, they can get reflux. Everybody's a little different, but maybe, you know, paying attention to that. Um, there are yeah, some. I, I'll pay attention to it because it happens so rarely because it's, sure. you know, it's kind of hard to pinpoint yeah. what it's well, causing. Well, if you have it, think about the last two meals you had and even some simple things, too. Now, there are some things that don't necessarily increase the acid in your stomach, but they uh-huh. open up that lower esophageal valve, that lower esophageal sphincter. Uh, things like caffeine, chocolate, uh, uh, peppermint, those are things that can that can do that and allow that acid to go back up the esophagus and then you get your symptoms. So think about those things, too. But, yeah, you don't have to, like, keep a big diary. You can just think, okay, I've got heartburn. What are the things I ate for the last two meals? Right. Okay. But thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for calling. Goodbye. Let's go to Tom in Columbus. Good morning, Tom. Hey, good morning. Thanks for calling. All right. Uh, I have a question about idiopathic pancreatitis. I was diagnosed with that a couple of weeks ago, and I'm 72. Uh-huh. I haven't had anything to drink since I was my, my 21st birthday. <clears throat> okay. And I do not have a gallbladder. Okay. So why why did I have uh, pancreatitis? I mean, it's, it's cleared up now. Everything's fine now. Right. Yeah, I, I just want to avoid going through it again if it's a trigger. Yeah, it is, trigger it, it is not... It's not something that's uh, that's that anybody wants to go through. So idiopathic pancreatitis. Your pancreas does two things. It produces some enzymes that help break down foods, and they're pretty powerful enzymes. Uh, and it squirts those into the small intestine uh, in the upper part of it. And it also produces insulin, which uh, helps your body deal with with, uh, blood sugar. So idiopathic means we don't know. So there are some medications, uh, some common medications even, like thiazide diuretics. So hydrochlorothiazide is one. Uh, that's that's out there that you might want to you know have your physician look at the medications you're taking just to see if any of those might be causing it. But a lot of times we just don't find that out. There are some exotic things like there's a southwestern scorpion that if you get stung by that it can give you pancreatitis. Uh, but you know it doesn't sound like that's probably what's going on here. But I would yeah. I would think about medications first. Uh, trauma is another one. You know, if you get hit in the stomach hard enough, you can have it. But sometimes we just don't figure it out. And, uh, you know, just avoiding those things that, that you have can can be the thing to do. You can actually have a, a, a gallstone that, uh, you know, even without your pancreas, though, that gets stuck in the in the uh, little drainage system from the pancreas. So that's that's a possibility. And, you know, probably at your age, it's probably not in the in the cards for something that causes it. But in younger kids, we think about uh, abnormally uh, developed pancreas. So if there was something, you know, earlier in age that did that. But uh, I would just do that, avoid alcohol, and, you know, hopefully you won't get it again. You're right. It's not something that you want to get. Thanks for calling right, in, Tom. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all our callers for calling in. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can uh, join us every Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. 
This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 